WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio proudly presents the Marian Hour with Father Dwight Campbell, spiritual advisor to WSFI and pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and St. Therese in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as <coughs> we celebrate this um, feast day of of let me see whose feast day is it today it's saint jane francis de chantel that's right i was thinking claire but claire was yesterday saint francis de chantel was married and had i think it was six children she was born in the mid-16th century after her husband died who was a baron she was quite wealthy she uh, decided to found a religious congregation she was advised and assisted in this effort by another saint, Francis de Sales, and she founded the Congregation of the, the Visitation Sisters. Um, and uh, the emblem for, for their congregation that was um, drawn by both St. Francis de Sales and Jane Francis de Chantel was one heart with two arrows going through it. The heart represented the union of the hearts of Jesus and Mary. Uh, she was a great devotee of the heart of Mary, as was St. Francis de Sales, and their congregation is still around today, the Visitation Sisters. We're going to begin our show today with my, I think it's my favorite prayer to Mary, the Memorare. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. St. Francis de Chantel, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as soon as I sat down this afternoon, I asked Angela if she w were, was going to stay with me so that I could ask her some questions. And I, she said yes, graciously. And uh, I asked her before we got on the air, um, guess what I'm going to talk about today? And she just smiled. She said, the Assumption of Our Lady. I said, correct, because the Assumption of Our Lady, the feast, Solemnity, is this Saturday, which is August 15th. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately because I think it's unfortunate, it is not a holy day of obligation because it falls on a Saturday. And... Um, that just happens to be the case this year. So, so the church, at least in most dioceses uh, in this country, will just be celebrating a morning mass for the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. <coughs> and I'm going to begin by quoting from the Apostolic Constitution in 1950 by the venerable Pope Pius XII, who defined as a dogma the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, um, 
I just said the Pope defined Mary's assumption as a dogma of the faith, that is the highest level of teaching. The Church always believed that Mary was assumed into heaven. It was a doctrine. Okay. Every dogma is a doctrine, a Church teaching, but not every doctrine is a dogma. Dogma is when uh, either a council with the Pope present or his representatives or the Pope himself ex cathedra proclaims a teaching in a most solemn manner, saying that everyone has to believe this. Now, if everyone believed it already, if it was already doctrine, you know, it was being prayed as the fourth uh, mystery of the glorious mysteries for centuries already, why did the Pope proclaim it a dogma? Well, in order to erase clear up any doubt that anyone would have in regard to Mary being assumed body and soul into heaven. And, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven. Why do we say Mary was assumed? Why do you think, Angela? Jesus ascended. Well, one might be by his power and yes. the other one by God's power. Precisely, precisely. Jesus, he's God, he ascends into heaven. Mary doesn't have that power. And <coughs> she was assumed, taken up into heavenly glory, body and soul. And the Pope defined this as a dogma on November 1st, 1950, in his apostolic constitution, Munificentissimus Deus, which means uh, the most generous God. That's how he began his, his apostolic constitution, the most generous um, gift-filled God, he, he took Mary into heaven. And this is what he formally defined. This is the statement of Mary's assumption, the definition, I should say. I quote here, we, as popes always say, we, speaking for uh, all their predecessors and the entire church, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. So, um, it is noteworthy that in this statement, the Pope mentions the three previous dogmas in regard to Mary. He refers to her as the Immaculate Mother of God. Her Immaculate Conception, Mother of God, that's another dogma, and Ever-Virgin, that's a third dogma. These were all previous dogmas. The most recent dogma before the Assumption was Mary's Immaculate Conception. That was defined by Blessed Pope Pius IX in 1858, four years after Mary appeared to Saint, um, pardon me, no, f four years before, it was f 1854, four years before Mary appeared to Saint Bernadette in 1858, <coughs> kind of confirming, uh, Mary was confirming uh, with her appearance to Bernadette that, that dogma. Anyway, the, the Mother of God, that dogma was proclaimed by the Church at Ephesus in in the year 431. There was doubt that Mary was the mother of God. There was a, a, a heretic, uh, a bishop, who denied that 
that um, Mary was the mother of God. He said she was the mother of Jesus, but not the mother of God, making Jesus really two persons. Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus, the human person, and then the divine person united himself with, with Mary um, at, the, at the baptism of our Lord. That was in 431. And then the perpetual virginity of Mary, she's a virgin, remember, in conceiving Jesus, in giving birth to him, and ever after. She never had relations with Joseph. That was defined in uh, the 8th century uh, by uh, the Lateran Council I and Pope St. Martin V. So it took a long time for between those first couple of dogmas and, and then these, these latter dogmas. Mary's Immaculate Conception, and then that's 1854, and then 1950, Pius XII, Mary's Assumption. And I'll make note of something here. I don't know how well this is known. Pope Pius XII shared with um, his uh, Secretary of State, I think it was, uh, it was Cardinal Federico Tedeschini, that he had been granted a gift by God uh, linked to his definition. As I said, he defined this dogma November 1st, 1950. And <coughs> on October 30th, on October 31st, on November 1st, and a week later on November 8th, the Pope, Pius XII, while walking in the Vatican Gardens, saw the miracle of the sun just as the children had seen it in a similar way to, to how the children at Fatima had seen the miracle of the sun. And he shared this with Cardinal Tedeschini, who then, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll read uh, an account of this. Um, Pope Pius XII witnessed a solar miracle while walking in the Vatican Gardens. He described it to Cardinal Tedeschini. And um, the Holy Father was able to look directly at the sun, still high in the sky. The sun appeared as an opaque globe surrounded by a luminous sphere. And it circled about inside of the sphere, shaking and palpitating. And Cardinal Tedeschini was in Fatima in 1951. It was the extended holy year at Fatima. And he told the crowd that was gathered uh, one day there about the Pope having seen this repetition of the 1917 solar miracle, the miracle of the sun. And he asked this question. He says, was this a reward, a sign of divine pleasure for the definition of the assumption? Was this a heavenly testimony authenticating the connection between the wonders of Fatima and <coughs> the head of Catholic truth and his teaching authority? It was all of these together. So uh, that's just an interesting historical note. Pope Pius XII had, you could say, a, a heavenly confirmation for a couple of days before the definition was proclaimed, okay, and then the day of, 
and a week later. Now, um, I'm going to ask Angela a question. Where do we find the Assumption of Mary in the Bible? I'll give you a hint. This is kind of a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you do. You don't. We don't. Yeah, we don't yeah. find Mary's Assumption in the Scriptures, okay? Um, not explicitly. All the beliefs of our faith are based upon Scripture, but we don't find all the truths of our faith uh, explicitly in Scripture. Just think about this. Where in the Bible do we find the formula that we profess, the central teaching of our faith? Three persons in one God, we call that the Blessed Trinity. Where do we find the words Blessed Trinity in the Scriptures? Nowhere. Where do we find the formula, three persons in one God, in the scriptures? Nowhere. It's deduced? Well, it's deduced and it's taught in tradition. The Holy Spirit leading and guiding the church. So, uh, that is uh, a similar case with Mary's assumption. But Mary's assumption even poses, you could say, deeper problems. Um, There is silence in the first, the early centuries of the church, among the early fathers of the church, the great saints of antiquity, the first couple of centuries, there's no mention of Mary's assumption into heaven. You would think there would be. There are some accounts that were written centuries later that are apocryphal, and that means they were just penned by someone out of devotion, and they portrayed the apostles being there with Mary, and uh, in fact, um, that that uh, Thomas wasn't there, even one of them says, and then he, he, he comes and Mary returns and says, Thomas, you, you missed it, and I, I really was assumed, okay, because he didn't believe it. But these are not... This is not something that is divinely revealed. This was something that people were writing out of just, um, uh, you know, a a devotional fervor. And, you know, a a person that was struggling with this dogma who was about to enter the Catholic Church, he wrote to me a couple of years back, you know, asking, you know, what is the Church's basis for, for this teaching? if I'm to believe it. And I said, well, we have to just, you know, use an analogy. We, we, we recognize, for example, that the canon of Scripture was not set until the 4th century. Okay. The official list of books in the Old Testament. There were letters floating around in the early centuries of the church penned not by the apostles but with the apostles names on them a gospel of peter a gospel of thomas a proto gospel of james okay the church didn't define or or set the canon until uh, the fourth century and um, you know as i mentioned the there's nothing explicit in in the scriptures saying three persons in one God that is a formula that is taught by the church and the church has been infallibly guided in setting the canon of of scripture in teaching us about the Trinity by the Holy Spirit who came on Pentecost and the same church that has been led by the Holy Spirit 
in these matters, while it led the church to celebrate the sacred liturgy. Okay. And as early as the fifth century, it may be even earlier, uh, we, have, we have liturgical celebrations, masses, prayers at the mass, acknowledging Mary's assumption into heaven. So this was a belief that was already around. And the, you know, the church, you could say, um, put it down in writing in a sense, um, because the liturgy, how we pray and the prayers in the church at masses throughout the centuries make up part of sacred tradition because the Holy Spirit is, is leading and guiding the church in, in the way we pray, the way we worship. And um, the Holy Spirit led a number of the, the, the fathers of the church to profess this belief. For example, one saint, he's called the, um, the um, saint of, of Mary's Assumption, that's one of his titles, Saint John Damascene. John of Damascus, okay. He wrote many beautiful homilies about Mary's assumption into heaven. And uh, in defining the dogma of Mary's assumption, although Pius XII said that all the proofs and considerations of the Holy Fathers, theologians, are based upon sacred scriptures as their ultimate foundation, okay, he realized that the scriptures didn't explicitly mention Mary's assumption, but he appealed principally to the faith of the church. And I, I, I've mentioned this before, you've, you've heard this term before, the sensus fidei, the sense of the faith. From the pope and bishops all the way down to the least of the faithful, what people have believed, well, uh, this belief was carried on, even though we don't have any written explicit accounts of this assumption. We don't have anyone eye saying they were an eyewitness to it, but this was something that was believed um, in, the, in the early church. As I said, no written accounts of even belief in it until, until we, the liturgical masses, the prayers in the mass, but this must have been handed on. We have to conclude this, that this was the common belief, and, and this is what the Pope relied on in, in making his, his dogmatic definition, uh, appealing to the faith of the Church rather than particular scriptural texts. Now, having said that, okay, um, again, I'll, I'll quote the Pope here. You know, he says uh, that um, the, the writings of the Holy Fathers, the theologians, are based upon the scriptures. Now, <coughs> is there any implicit reference to Mary's assumption in the scripture? We'll deal with that question when we return after a short break. And you're listening to Father Dwight Campbell in the Marian Hour. Oh, my God. 
Bishop George Rassus speaking. I live in Libertyville, Illinois, in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Jesus and the Apostles have the spoken word one-on-one, and yet uh, through radio and the magic of uh, electronic media, we can reach all kinds of people instantly. And so the message is as important or more important than ever in our world today, and I hope that many of us will listen and learn and come close to the Lord each and every day. God bless you. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Hello, this is Father Dwight Campbell. We're back with our second part of three parts of the Marian Hour today. And we're talking about Mary's Assumption into Heaven, which we celebrate this coming Saturday, August 15th. Although, as I said earlier, it is not a holy day of obligation because it falls on Saturday. And uh, most most churches that will offer a Mass in honor of Mary's Assumption will do it, I'm sure, on Saturday morning because Saturday evening is, is the 20th Sunday of ordinary time. Anyway, back to... Um, to Mary's Assumption. And if you missed the first part of this hour, we were talking about how we don't find any explicit account of Mary's Assumption or even reference to it in the Bible. It is something that is handed down to us um, in tradition. But with with Mary's Assumption, we don't even see any references to it in the first couple of centuries of the, of the Church. However, starting in the 5th century, we, we see Masses being offered in honor of Mary. So this, this is a testimony to the fact that people were believing this. The liturgy, divine liturgy, it, it uh, contributes to, makes up part of what we call sacred tradition how we're praying expresses our belief and the prayers in the, in the masses express our faith in the mysteries, in this case Mary's Assumption. Now, although we don't have explicit references to the Blessed Virgin Mary, her Assumption in Scripture, we do have implicit references. And Pope Pius XII, in his Apostolic Constitution of 1950, defining 
Mary's assumption, he made reference to a number of scripture passages. Now, I'll ask Angela, what is the earliest scripture passage we have that refers to Mary? Do you remember? So cross your head, Genesis yes, 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Do you remember the name of that verse? Um, the proto... Oh, I did a proto... Evangelium. Okay, yeah. the proto-gospel, the first announcement of the good news, which in which God speaks to the serpent, saying, I will put enmities between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and she will crush your head. Now, Pope Pius XII says that the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, reveals that the struggle between the serpent, Satan, and the woman, who is Mary, uh, whom the early fathers would call the New Eve, okay, and her seed, Jesus Christ, the New Adam, I quote him here, the struggle would finally result in that most complete victory over sin and death, which are always mentioned together in the writings of the Apostle to the Gentiles, that is St. Paul. So, uh, Mary's complete victory. We don't have complete victory in the Christian life until when, Angela? Heaven, when you go to heaven? And, well, oh, actually... Oh, complete victory. Complete victory. Second coming of The Christ. second coming because what happens at the second coming? What are we getting, everyone who who is in heaven, and and a glorified body? Yes, yes, we'll be we'll be uh, enjoying a glorified body, a body just as Jesus has, and now Mary has. So this is the complete victory, which Pius the Twelfth is referring to. Therefore, it's fitting that the total victory over sin and death won by Jesus Christ, seen in his resurrection, in a glorified body, and his ascension, in a glorified body into heaven, should be shared by Mary, the woman, who gave him birth, and <coughs> who, who shared in his passion and death as well. She gave him birth, she raised him, okay, Pius XII says this, and stood at the foot of the cross with him. And uh, now she's, she is, because of this, she is sharing the total victory with Christ in the kingdom, in heavenly glory with a glorified body. And uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I didn't bring my whole catechism today, I just brought, I Xeroxed a page off, uh, number 966 in the Catechism. It says this, finally, the Immaculate Virgin was preserved free from all stain of original sin in the course of her earthly life. When it was finished, and was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory, and exalted by the Lord as the Queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her Son, the Lord of Lords, the conqueror of sin and death. Okay, so uh, the Catechism is teaching here that Mary has a singular participation in her son's resurrection and 
and anticipation, this is what the Catechism goes on to say, she has a singular participation in her son's resurrection. I mean, we are all, by our baptism, you know, born again, we receive the life of Christ, but Mary's participation in Jesus' resurrection is unique because she is going to be fully redeemed, body and soul, taken up into heaven. And this is an in anticipation of the resurrection of the dead on the last day of other Christians. That's what number 966 of the Catechism says. So it's important to remember the other saints in heaven are not yet fully redeemed. We're only fully redeemed when we get our bodies. We're body, soul, composites. We're not angels, so we're not going to remain um, bodiless creatures for eternity even if we get to heaven. We're getting our bodies back. <coughs> now, another scripture verse which Pius Twelfth makes reference to and cites in his uh, bull defining the Assumption of Mary is our first reading for the feast on Saturday. And what do you think that is? I'll give a, I'll give you a hint, Angela. Uh, what scripture verse makes reference to Mary clothed as a queen? Yeah, who is she who comes forth as the morning rising? Well, actually, uh -oh. that's that's uh, that's a good one too. That's from the Song of Songs, but. Uh, Pius XII, actually, he quotes another one which makes reference to Mary being clothed in glory. Can you guess what verse that is? <laughs> you know it, yes. Clothed with the sun. Yeah. And the moon under her feet. Oh, Revelation. Revelation 12.1. Yeah. Now, I'm going to read here uh, the first reading for the Feast of the Assumption, the Saturday. Okay. The book of Revelation, but it starts not at chapter 12, it starts rather at chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, verse 9, pardon me, verse 19, and then it runs into chapter 12. When John wrote it, it didn't have chapters and verses, these were added. So in John's mind, all this is running together, keep that in mind, okay? So God's temple in heaven was opened. The Ark of the Covenant could be seen in the temple. Now we know who's the Ark of the Covenant. Mary. It's Mary. She's she. The old Ark contained the Word of God written on two stones, given to Moses, the Ten Commandments. Okay. Mary is the new Ark, who contained in her womb not the Word of God written on two stones, but the Word of the very Word of God made flesh. So God sees the Ark in the temple, pardon me, John sees this in his vision. He goes on to say, right after that, this is verse 12, 1 of, of Revelation, the Apocalypse, a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, wailed aloud in pain, as she labored to give birth. Okay. And then another so sign appeared in the sky, a huge red dragon, seven heads, ten thorns, and its heads were seven diadems. Okay, it goes on to talk about this out, but I want to really focus on those first verses because this is this is one of the bases that the Pope points to in defining the dogma of Mary's assumption because 
Revelation 12.1, but part actually 11.9 speaks of this great sign um, in the heavens. And 12.1, the, the woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. This verse has a dual meaning. Uh, most of the early church fathers said that the woman symbolizes not Mary, but what do you think, Angela? I would have thought Mary, the church itself. The church, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And the church in its final glory, you know, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, on a crowned with stars, okay. But um, as Pius XII says, that the medieval doctors of the church, St. Albert the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, these, these medieval doctors, and especially those that, came, that followed them, and the church as well, popes in their teaching, I quote the Pope here, Pius XII, have recognized the assumption of the Virgin Mother of God as something signified in that woman clothed with the sun whom John the Apostle contemplated on the la island of Patmos. Revelation 12.1 implicitly reveals Mary's bodily assumption. Why? It speaks of her feet, of her head, okay, of her body being clothed. Okay? You clothe the body, you don't clothe the pure spirit. Okay. And the preceding verse, Revelation 11.9, also lends support to her bodily assumption. God's temple was opened, the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. Pius XII says that, and I quote him here, theologians and preachers have looked to the ark of the covenant built of incorruptible wood and placed in the Lord's temple as a type of the most pure body of the Virgin Mary, preserved, exempt from all corruption of the tomb and raised to such glory in heaven. <coughs> now, the Ark of the Covenant was made of incorruptible wood. So this is likened to Mary, her, her body, her soul, her person was incorruptible. It could not be corrupted by sin because she was preserved from that original sin, filled with grace from the moment of her conception, and Satan could not get a grip on her. That's why she crushes Satan's head. That's one translation of the Hebrew pronoun, which is actually what Revelation 3, pardon me, uh, Genesis 3.15 uses. It will crush your head. It, properly speaking, it's Jesus who crushes the head of Satan, but you can translate it as he or she. She refers to, of course, Mary. And the popes teach this. I mean, Pope Pius IX used that verse referring it to Mary, Genesis 3.15, in defining the Immaculate Conception. And here, Pius XII, again, uses Genesis 3.15 in talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, as a basis for her assumption. So when we talk about Revelation 11.19, the, the ark that was made of 
incorruptible wood, well, uh, that is a type of uh, 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 prefigurement of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who would be free from all corruption of, of, of sin and corruption of the tomb. See, that's what Pius XII says. Her body wouldn't corrupt. Right. Now, why do our bodies corrupt? Because our souls separate from our bodies. What does that do to as a result of sin. the original sin? Yes. Mary was free from original sin. So it's fitting that her, her body wouldn't corrupt. And however, the, the primary reason for her being taken to up body and soul into heaven is not her immaculate conception, but rather uh, her motherhood, her divine motherhood, because uh, she was in perfect union with her son during her whole life. And it was fitting that she should be taken up into heaven. And see, that's what Pius XII makes reference to. Mary carried Jesus in her womb. Okay, So her motherhood, um, she, is, she carries the word made flesh in her womb, whereas the, the first ark carried just the word written on stones. And then Pius XII looks to another verse as a justification for Mary's assumption into heaven. You may not this may not come to mind immediately, but it makes sense once I'm going to say this, okay? It is Luke's gospel, the Annunciation, the words of the Archangel Gabriel. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, okay? Um, actually, blessed art thou amongst women is what Elizabeth says to Mary. Well. The medieval doctors, says the Pope, saw Mary's assumption as the fulfillment of that most perfect grace granted to the Blessed Virgin and the special blessing that countered the curse of Eve. Mary was preserved from all stain of sin and filled with grace from the moment of her conception. And Pius XII also mentions that from the beginning of the Church, the tradition also speaks, albeit silently, of Mary's assumption from another fact. And this fact is that always the Church venerated, and still venerates, the, the remains of the saints, okay, their relics. What saint would be, who, what saints, relics would be venerated most of all above any other saint? It would be Mary's. We don't have any relics of Mary. We don't have any, any um, bones of Mary. This is also a testament, albeit silently, to her assumption into heaven. We'll continue with our discussion of Mary's assumption in the third segment in a few minutes.
Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MAT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. Hi, this is Wes Riccio from the Holy Family Catholic Bookstore, wishing the fullness of God's blessings upon all those who will soon be receiving the sacrament for the first time. If you have a child, grandchild, or godchild being baptized, receiving their first Holy Communion, or being confirmed, remember that Holy Family has the area's largest selection of gifts, accessories, and supplies to make their special day more memorable. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information, including a virtual tour, is available on Facebook. Hi, this is Father Dwight Campbell. We are back for our third segment of the Marian Hour. In these days preceding the great feast solemnity of the Blessed Virgin Mary's Assumption into Heaven, we're going to celebrate that this Saturday. Uh, which is in a way beautiful because Saturday is Mary's day anyway. Sunday is the Lord's day, Saturday is Mary's day. And uh, we're talking about how the scriptures are silent as to an explicit description or reference to Mary's assumption into heaven. And even the first couple of centuries of the church, there's no mention of this, but, but then the the faith of the church is manifested with feasts of Mary being celebrated in the liturgy, which shows that this is this was part of the faith of people. And this happened both in the East and in the West. In the East, the Feast of the Assumption originally was called, and I think still today it is, the Dormition. And that means the falling asleep of Mary, a beautiful way of uh, the, the, the sleep of death. Okay. And in the fifth century, um, in the East, the belief was that Mary died in Jerusalem and her body was assumed there. Uh, in the West, in Rome, in the fifth century, we have the feast named differently. It's called the Assumption. But it's the same event. And um, the Assumption, I'll just make reference to Pius XII's apostolic exhortation from November 1st, 1950. He defined the Assumption of Mary, confirming the Church's belief here, Okay, uh, giving an official stamp of approval to it that every Catholic has to believe it to be a Catholic. Okay. Um, he calls Mary's assumption the final culmination of her other privileges. Okay, she's the August Mother of God, and she is mysteriously united with Jesus in her Immaculate Conception by her inviolate virginity. Okay. Um, 
And because of this, she gained the supreme crown of her privileges to be carried up body and soul, to be exalted in glory in heaven. And Mary's assumption is really a consequence of and fitting culmination of her other privileges. Pius XII links Mary's assumption to her divine motherhood because she conceived Jesus, nurtured him, gave birth to him, and he says this, it seems impossible that she should not be united with him bodily in heaven because there's this close union between mother and son. So how could Jesus deny Mary to be fully redeemed and share in the fullness of his redemption? Uh, he couldn't do this, no. It's most fitting, being the mother of God, this close union, she bore him in her womb for nine months, that she should be fully redeemed body and soul. Mary's assumption, says Pius XII, is also a consequence of her immaculate conception. You know, as a result of original sin, our souls will separate from our bodies at death to be reunited only at Christ's second coming at the end of the world. And because God predestined Mary to be mother of his divine son, he preserved her by a singular grace from all stain of original sin, filled her with grace. It's most fitting that um, this sinless, spotless person who's a virgin as well, okay, should not suffer the consequence of original sin and have her soul separated from her body. St. John Damascene, or John of Damascus, he's the doctor of the Assumption, that's what he's called. He, he's the, the last of the uh, Eastern doctors of the church. He died in 749. And he linked Mary's Assumption to her perpetual virginity, as well as her divine motherhood and her union with Jesus. And he, he said, uh, her union with Jesus on the cross, I should say, okay. And this is what St. John Damascene said. He wrote a number of, of homilies, sermons on the Assumption. He says, it was necessary, pardon me, I'll just say this too. He wrote these words, which Pius XII quotes in his bold defining Mary's Assumption from this homily of John Damascene's, he quotes, John Damascene, this is what he says, the saint, it was necessary that she who had preserved her virginity inviolate in childbirth should also have kept her body free from all corruption after death. It was necessary that she who carried the creator as a child on her breast should dwell in the tabernacles of God. It was necessary that she who gazed on her crucified son and had been pierced in the heart by the sword of sorrow, which she escaped in giving him birth, should contemplate him seated with the Father in heaven. And we can say also that it's most fitting that Jesus should not permit the body of her from whom he took flesh to undergo corruption, but rather should glorify it. And um, you know, I'll quote here from another saint, John Paul II, in a homily on the Feast of the Assumption. John Paul II says this, Our Lady uh, did 
every daily action in total union with Jesus. And this union reached its apex on Calvary in love, in compassion, in the suffering of the heart. Therefore, God gave her full participation in Jesus' resurrection. The Holy Mother's body as that of her son was preserved from corruption. So John Paul II, you know, kind of following up on, on St. John Damascene, uh, sees Mary's co-redemption as um, a reason for her assumption into, into heaven. And, um, you know, I mentioned the census fidei, the, the sense of the faith. I'll, I'll just mention here, um, in defining the assumption, um, the Pope did not wake up one morning and say, oh, I think I'll define Mary's assumption. Okay. Uh, similarly, Pope Pius Ninth, in defining Mary's Immaculate Conception, um, he did something that Pius XII later did. They surveyed all the bishops of the world. He, he wrote a document, he surveyed all the bishops saying, do you and your people believe that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven? Pius IX had done this overwhelmingly. Everyone said, we believe in her immaculate conception. Pius XII did the same thing. And um, the bishops responded overwhelmingly that yes, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. This is the the sensus fidei, the sense of the faith, and it plays a part in the development of, of doctrine. And, um, well, I'm going to ask another question here. Did Mary die before she was assumed into heaven? Okay. What think ye? I'll, I'll ask uh, both uh, um, Annie Oakley, who's here uh, with us, and and uh, Angela Tomlinson, did Mary die or not? I've heard that she did, but I don't know if that's right. Your, your mic's not on, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. You heard that she did? Yes. Okay. Um, well, your thoughts, Angela? Well, I know they said Christ experienced death. Well, Jesus died, no doubt about it. Is. Jesus died, okay. However, in defining the dogma... I would say she didn't die. Well... Because the soul would have had to leave the body. Well, there's been a split on this in the beginning of the church. Um, and actually, when Pius XII defined the dogma, he left the question open. Uh. Because he said... Um, let me quote him again here, um, that when Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, <laughs> he didn't say whether she died or not. However, the early church, some of the early fathers held that she didn't die because she was preserved from sin. She, uh, it would have been unfitting for Mary to experience death. But 
other early fathers and the weight of the tradition, especially from the Middle Ages, yes, she died. And um, after 1950, after the definition of Pius XII, other popes have weighed in. I'll, I'll quote John Paul II, for example. Um, he says in a homily of October, pardon me, uh, November 18th, 1995, uh, that, well, he speaks of Mary's death. He says, we know nothing of Mary's life after the Pentecost event, nor of the date and circumstances of her death. And then in a homily on June 25th, 1997, he said, could Mary have experienced the drama of death in her own flesh? Yes, this question. Reflecting on Mary's destiny and her relationship with her divine son, it seems legitimate to answer in the affirmative. Since Christ died, it would be difficult to maintain the contrary for his mother. The fathers of the church who had no doubts in this regard reasoned along these lines. So, um, so let me ask you a question, Father. What is? How would you define death? That your heart stops beating? Yes. Your heart, I mean, just, your heart just gives way, and then your soul leaves the body. Well, uh, Jesus' soul left the body for three days, maybe. Yes, yes, and and some of the early, I say, these apocryphal accounts speak of Mary's soul leaving the body, and then her her body was taken up. These aren't scriptural, but. Um, but so the weight of the weight of the opinion is that she she dies, whether her soul left the body or not. Uh, the heart is, stopped. Yeah, I mean she she died. I mean that's, and and we can say, you know she she fell asleep in death. You know that's a nice way of saying it. <laughs> she fell asleep. She died. It wasn't a, a painful or frightful thing to her. She was conforming herself to Jesus. Now um, another issue is. Where did Mary, where was she ascended to heaven? Where was she? Two places claim the site. The Eastern Church says Jerusalem, and they, they call the Feast of Dormition, the falling asleep. I visited the, the um, Church of the Mary's Dormition when I was in Jerusalem, just back in, in October. Um, the... Um, Church also, the, the Western, I would say, church more so, um, looks to Ephesus. And Ephesus is where Mary was proclaimed the mother of God in the year 431. And actually, even a pope, Pius XIV, pardon me, Benedict XIV, who died in 1758, uh, thought Ephesus should be regarded as the place of her death. He said, Our Lady died at Ephesus when she took her flight into heaven. There's a lot of good historical evidence for this. The oldest church in the world is dedicated, dedicated to Mary is at Ephesus. It was built there in the third century. That's one of the reasons, and one of the reasons why we think the Council of Ephesus in the 5th century was held there because it was thought that Mary moved there with St. John. Okay. And, and uh, it was, there's a tradition that, that she died there and there's, there's a place there of her, her assumption. Um, but we're, 
we're not sure. And at this point, just for the last couple of minutes, I'm going to turn to a mystic, Venerable uh. Mary of Agreda, okay? And uh, Mary of Agreda, interestingly, says that um, there was, if you remember, the first council of the church, 48 AD, whether the Christians who were pagans, who were becoming Christians, had to follow the Mosaic law and whether the men had to get circumcised. This was a big question. You had the circumcisers among the Jews saying, yes, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to get circumcised, have follow the Mosaic law, you know, avoid pork and all this stuff. Well, Mary of Agreda says that since Paul and Barnabas petitioned Peter to write to Mary and tell her to get back to Jerusalem for the Council of Ephesus, and Mary did. And Mary went back to Ephesus. And then, um, let me see here. I'm going to try to be quick here. Um, that um, the Archangel Gabriel came shortly thereafter, announced to Mary her death, that it would be in three years. You have three years more to be present. She was praying. She would see all the apostles in her in her, her mind, be praying for them. And um, the Holy Trinity sent the Archangel Gabriel to announce to the Queen at what time and what, what manner she would pass to eternal glory. Three years later, uh, she would she would uh, pass into eternal glory, and then um, uh, Mary of Agreda describes the happy death of the Most Holy Virgin, okay, and that the apostles were there, and and that this was in Jerusalem, okay. So um, we have these this account from a mystic. Uh, we have good evidence. However, f f historical for Ephesus, um, if you want to believe Mary of Agreda, we're free to do so. There, there's no obligation to believe one or the other. Um, I was happy to see that Mary of Agreda said this because uh, having visited a couple of times the Church of the Dora Mission in Jerusalem, uh, it, it affirms that, that tradition as well, okay? So let's uh, end with a prayer. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God, despise not our prayers and our necessities, but ever deliver us from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. And I'll just say that next time, uh, the next uh, Marian hour, two weeks from today, I will discuss what Mary does when she's ascended to heaven, her queenship, which we celebrate the Saturday following the Assumption, August 22nd. That's beautiful. Father, would you give us your priestly blessing? Through the intercession of the sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary, may Almighty God bless you and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank Great show, Father, as always. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Marian Hour with Father Dwight Campbell. For a free copy of this recording, please visit us at wsfipodbean.com.